This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. Today, Izadine and Nazmi Anwar join me to talk about Izadine's Fresh Ed Flux episode, which aired last week. I recommend you go and listen to that episode before you continue with this one. In our episode today, we discuss the power of memory when thinking about development and excavate some of the layers in Izadine's Flux episode. So I wanted to work with memory particularly because I felt like it was important to try and access parts of history that I wasn't necessarily present in. So there were moments where I turned to my mother for stories in a time before I was born, for instance, or from a time where she grew up in the presence of my grandfather. And I wanted to, to trace those memories about development as a way of trying to keep hold of how development has changed ways of life across time and not necessarily um, in a bad way, in some ways for the good. Izadine Anwar is a lecturer in education at Kiel University and his brother, Nazmi Anwar, teaches architecture in Malaysia. Izadine Anwar, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me, Will. So congratulations on your Flux episode just such a journey that it takes the listener on. I just absolutely loved listening to it and actually seeing it produced over the last year. I want to start by just asking you, you know, what was it like to be a Flux Fellow over the last year? What was that experience like to you? It was a very creative experience, which I felt that came at a very interesting time in my sort of academic trajectory. So I was in the process of wrapping up my PhD at that time when I first started the fellowship. And the fellowship, I guess, gave me a kind of creative outlook led to process the work that I did in a different manner than a conventional academic approach. And so it was a very welcome opportunity to, to think in a different way about the work that I had been doing and, and also to reflect on the sort of personal experience of what brought me to the research that, that, that I eventually conducted for my PhD. It is quite interesting to think of how PhDs and dissertations, there's very strong norms and conventions that one must follow and how they, in a sense, become limiting to, you know, at some point, they actually limit you with how you want to express your ideas. Yeah, definitely. I felt like the whole fellowship was an opportunity to, I suppose, express a more creative side to the work that I was doing. Um, not to say that, that there wasn't any opportunity to do that within the PhD, but I definitely felt like it was something that had to be curtailed in a way. Um, and so the fellowship really gave me an opportunity to sort of reignite that creative part of uh, of, of my thinking around a topic that in many ways is quite personal, but even though it is an academic topic, I felt like there was something to be made in terms of a creative contribution, and I felt like that was possible through the fellowship. Did you have any experience with audio storytelling, audio editing before doing this fellowship? Not a whole lot, but before doing this fellowship, I had uh, participated in a digital exhibition where I wrote this short story piece that had some audio accompaniment to it, which was a recording of Sounds of Nature. So there was that uh, experience, but it didn't involve a huge amount of editing or the kind of production work that, that took place in the fellowship. I remember your application 
we ask for an audio file as part of the application process. And I remember yours distinctively because you had the sound of nature playing in the background while you were speaking. And I think when we interviewed you, we asked how you put it together. And you just you said you just sort of pressed play on your phone or something to make the sa- the sounds you recorded and then recorded your voice on top of it. I just thought that was such a sort of a simple yet effective way of telling the story you did in your application. Yeah, it was definitely quite cobbled together in a very unprofessional way. I mean, thank God since the fellowship that had sort of that skill had developed. But yeah, it was from that point, just a matter of trying to use whatever technology that I had and whatever knowledge that I had about it. But, but yeah, I definitely learned a lot more through the fellowship. And what I think is so nice about it is that, you know, the sounds of nature really continued not only from your application, but all the way through your final episode, like the sound of water is so prevalent through the whole episode. You just constantly return to this water as if you're going down this journey on a river. So, you know, what were you trying to convey with that sound? What was the point of using the sound of water in your episode? So I wanted to to use that motif of the sound of water, particularly to represent the river, because it forms such a huge part of not only the kind of theme of the episode in terms of development, but in terms of my personal connection to the river of my childhood. So when I was growing up, my mother ancestral home is uh, situated next to a river uh, where her her parents lived and in order to get to her parents home when I was much younger we would have to cross the river on um, a boat to get to the other side and so the river is such a huge presence in my own life in terms of growing up and we would go down to the river to bathe it was such a an integral part of transportation and as I grew older the river became this cipher for development in a sense of how the color of the water, the color of the river changed over time, how our relationship to the river changed because we no longer had to cross the river. There's been a bridge that was built across it. The river is becoming a source of anxiety because of increasing uh, monsoon floods. So the the idea of the river is connected both personally, but also to the broader question of of development. So I felt it was necessary to to include it sonically. And the sound, it really worked in a way, you know, it sort of trans transports the listener to parts of Malaysia, you know, I mean, and did that sound come from Malaysia? Like, is that recorded by you or by someone in Malaysia? Or did you use sort of found audio for that? So I used uh, sounds that were recorded in Malaysia during the time where I was recording for the fellowship. So the sounds of it are not all sounds of actual river water. Some of them were sounds of rainfall uh, around my house. Some of them were uh, the sound of, of water flowing in a drain or something that kind of, of that setup but they were recorded uh, around my house and I remember some of it is are actually sounds that I recorded during the time of my own PhD field work which took place a few years ago and the reason I wanted to record sound at that point was to use them as sort of triggers for remembering the field while I was writing on my PhD so I had recorded sort of other ambient sounds around the school that I did field work in the sound of rainfall and some of that made it into the episode as well that's quite an interesting insight that I guess people might not have picked up on just by listening to it to know the sort of origins of these different sounds. Because in a way, what you've done is sonically, you've like jumped back and forth in time when these different sounds were actually recorded, which mirrors in many ways the story that you were telling about memory and about your own personal, you know, development, but also Malaysia's development going back and forth in different time periods. So it's it's a really interesting connection to the way in which the sounds were recorded and used to 
mirror sort of the story you were telling. You know, you started from the very beginning of the fellowship. You were talking about this project with sort of this working title about it was called Meandering Methodology. And we eventually didn't use that as the title. But do you think or how do you see meandering methodologies useful in understanding the project that you worked on? I think what eventually happened was that the episode itself hopefully becomes a representation of form of methodology, a form of trying to how to make knowledge essentially. And what I meant when I started the project by meandering methodology is in a sense of how the things I wanted to follow in the course of this episode were for me useful entry points into thinking about development. And so it could be the, a conversation with my mom, it could be a memory she told me about that I wanted to find out more of. So it wasn't necessarily something that was sort of planned in a traditional kind of methodological sense, but rather to sort of follow these touch points from my own sort of personal experiences and from my connection to my family members of how that would illuminate something about development that I would not otherwise have been able to uncover. When you say the word meandering methodologies, and I think of the river that you've described and the sounds we hear of water, I do think of the listener going down this journey, like, you know, snaking along on the river and sort of meandering along. And, and your voice is so sort of easy to listen to. And you just sort of tell us these stories. And it just, you know, I just feel like I'm on some boat going down this river, listening to all these different stories. It's, it's just so sort of peaceful in a way. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word, but it's, it's just so easy to listen to in a way. So memory is such an important part of this story. And I, I actually, I really like thinking about development from a memory, you know, from remembering or through memory. And it seems like it's a gravitational force, you know, it sort of keeps pulling you back in these different time periods. So why are you working with memory so much to tell this story? So I wanted to work with memory, particularly because I felt like it was important to try and access uh, parts of history that I wasn't necessarily present in. So there were moments where I turned to my mother for stories in a time before I was born, for instance, or from a time where she grew up in the presence of my grandfather. And I wanted to, to trace those memories about development as a way of trying to keep hold of how development has changed ways of life across time and not necessarily um, in a bad way in some ways for the good but sort of uh, access those kind of details of what those ways of life looked like and and so turning to memory for me was very instrumental to be able to find ways of describing those changes that have taken place over time through development. You end up talking to a lot of your family members sort of in this episode and we hear stories of your grandfather he seems to be you know so incredibly important we hear the voice of your mother but we also hear the voice of your brother and it just so happens for the first time ever on fresh ed we actually have an extra guest on the show today who is your brother nazmi nazmi anwar thank you so much for joining us today in this conversation and to just sort of add to this conversation about your brother's fantastic podcast. Thank you for inviting. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Can I ask, what was it like for you to participate in the production of Isadine's episode? I think when he first told me about it, it sounded like a very personal project. And in some ways, memory, because also in a way the, the project started uh, during the pandemic, when we were kind of in lockdowns and we were separated from, from our families. And let's say the place where our parents live in, it's like we, we cannot travel across state lines. So this idea of memory and distance and trying to kind of reach 
out and connect, you know, family members who are, you know, far, seemingly far away, right? It, it suddenly became quite important. And, and it was funny because, like, they don't live that far away from where I live. But I think during the pandemic, the distance felt more just because you're not allowed to kind of, you know, travel and visit them. And, and suddenly distance is not just a physical kind of dimension. But then you start to also, in parallel, you start to recall, you know, the memories of people who are no longer around, right? Who, 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 I mean, some people, you, you cannot reach them because there's like, like a travel limitation. Some people, you cannot reach because they're just no longer around, right? So I, I feel that all of those, well, when he first described this kind of research or, or this kind of project that he's doing, it felt like, you know, for me, it felt like reaching out, trying to grab hold of memories of people who are no longer around or trying to make sure certain kind of memory I don't know whether to kind of in a way to kind of verify I guess certain kind of memories whether they're correct or not although that really doesn't matter I guess memories is, I mean they are the way that they, you remember them but I, it felt like a personal thing that could be expressed in different ways and I felt it was kind of an interesting kind of appendix to the actual PhD research that he was doing that's such a nice way to think about it, how personal it is and how these memories can be different from the same people living the same experiences, but then years later remembering things slightly differently for whatever reason. Was it hard, like emotionally? Was this a difficult process for the two of you to sort of put together this public-facing audio podcast about family history and family memories. Yeah, I felt like it was a, a kind of a tension between how much of the personal to be exposed in, in such a, a public way. And, and in many ways, the episode for me felt like a very intimate piece of family history that was perhaps in another instance meant to only to be shared among family members. But I felt like it became a kind of method for me in a sense that the personal is never really far away from much broader stories. Uh, when And we and when I think about the story of development, so much of these personal stories, I feel, are resonant among other Malaysians who have similar experiences of thinking about the rural space or having family members from rural communities. And so I felt it was, in some ways, necessary to have that bridge between the personal and, and the larger story of development. But definitely, I felt like the, the process of trying to uncover these memories and, and you know, asking questions to family members and, and asking people mm -hmm. to remember things is not necessarily the easiest thing. And it takes a lot of labor. I feel. Nazmi, was it difficult for you in any way? I don't think it's difficult. Like the act of sharing itself, it's not maybe not that difficult. Like more the personal act of trying to unlock certain memories and, and trying to recall, you know, I think Rasuddin was asking me about, do we have recordings of our grandfather speaking? And I actually do. I have videos of our late grandfather, which were recorded a long time. He, he passed away, what, 11 years ago. I do have video recordings of him, but it's, it's still very difficult for me to watch those kind of things, right? I mean, Meaning, like, it's, it's different that he's in your memory and you think about him, but then to be confronted with, like, uh, documents of his existence, right, which also then reminds you of the fact that he's no longer around. I think those kind of things is kind of emotionally, is very difficult for me. Like, I'm still unable to watch those recordings. But, like, talking about him and kind of recollecting what he was like, I think that, in a way, was kind of also quite emotional, right, but also quite cathartic in a way that it, it opens up. It made his life somewhat more relatable to our lives now, if that makes any sense uh, but trying to confront like actual recordings of him speaking or videos of him I find those kind of things still difficult to do uh, even today like I'm unable to watch any of In this process did you ever realize that the two of you or your mother have different memories like you know where they're not exactly aligned and did you ever like talk about that? 
I didn't necessarily think we've talked about it, but I feel in some ways it is represented in the episode. So I do feel like, and in, in some ways it is on my end, quite a deliberate uh, decision to structure the episode in a particular way, where we, for instance, return to this photo of, of Thor as the grandfather. And the three of us, myself, um, my brother and my mother, describe this photo in different ways and highlighting different details or recalling different memories. I think, of course, in terms of factual accuracy, perhaps my mother has the most authority to speak about this because it was of her time. She was there when the photo was taken. But I felt like it was a device that shows us how memory is very specific and how it's positioned according to who is the narrator of particular memories. So the way that my mom speaks about the photo, she's highlighting different things or she's pointing to a particular place, whereas the way I talk about it and the way my brother speaks about it perhaps addresses different elements of the photo or recalls different memories. So the again, that notion of memory as fact becomes much more complicated and in many ways it's constructed from particular places. I want to ask a little bit about some of the music that you hear in the podcast. And I think this is a question probably for Nazmi because you ended up playing a lot of this music. Tell me, I mean, I guess the question is really, who is Ahmed Black, who is credited with the music in the episode? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Well, I mean, I've always been playing music. I mean, I'm still not very good at it, but it's something that I do kind of uh, continuously. And I think around the same time that uh, Azudin was doing his research, Search. My daughter was born, and during that time, being stuck in the house with the, with lockdown, and I used to play electric guitars, which I mean, obviously, is louder. That something that needs to be played loud, right? Where, where volume really matters. So, with the new baby being born, I was forced to pick up the acoustic guitar, which is something I'm not very like. I've never been a fan of acoustic guitar. I've always felt that it's kind of feeble and, and it's a bit like uh, I don't know, archaic or whatever. But then circumstances forced me to kind of confront the instrument, and I think playing something. So so bare, it, it also brings you kind of face to face with the fact that with your limitation as a person who's, you know, who plays music. Right? I'm not a very patient student of the guitar. So let's say if I'm trying to learn someone else's song or if I'm trying to learn certain you know aspects of the guitar, I just end up making up my own pieces. That's the way that I play is that I would make up my own pieces rather than, oh, let's try to learn, you know, so-and-so's whatever. So during this process, I end up gradually making up this, I don't know, acoustic compositions, very bare, like recorded, just very low tech. Uh, in in my room and I guess in partly it's inspired by I, I discovered the work of this American guitarist called John Fahey who was kind of a, a scholar of all uh, kind of American music and who was kind of putting his own spin on this kind of music and that was kind of way back in the 60s and a lot of his work dealt with kind of obscure rural location he had kind of used places as kind of catalyst for his little acoustic compositions and a lot of it had to do with rivers and locations like that right so while I was making up my own things I was like well that is kind of an interesting method uh, maybe I could do something like that but I should then do it or, or kind of contextually place it in kind of my own uh, you know time and space and place right so then I, I started making up this idea of compositions based on memory or based on my recollection of our uh, kampong or our village uh, in Hulu Pahang this upriver in Pahang and while doing that I also did not feel comfortable to kind of put like my own name on this music like it felt like my role as an author needs to be removed uh, so I, I was trying to invent kind of an alter ego or a, or a character that is supposed to perform this music and then I remembered 
there was a memory that I thought that I had seen a photograph of my grandfather. At the bottom of the photograph, he had written uh, Ahmad Black as the name, you know. And his name was Ahmad bin Hitam. Hitam is black uh, in, in Malay. So Ahmad Black is like, I don't know, like a like a half-hearted English translation of his name or something like that. So I, I remembered that image of my grandfather and I decided to use that name as the kind of, you know, uh, alter ego behind this, this kind of compositions and this little acoustic pieces that I had written and then I mean I don't remember whether I told uh, Aizuddin about it and then he said he's doing something similar or whether he told me and somehow I don't I no longer remember how we put two and two together because I think when I was doing it I was doing it just for my own to document something on my own part like I, I it was not I don't think it was originally part of his project uh, but it was something that by chance we worked on in, in parallel. Aizuddin, do you remember how you sort of made the connection? Because it is, it's scarily similar, right? I mean, it's quite amazing that the two of you are working on two slightly different projects, but sort of approaching concepts in a similar way. I mean, that is quite amazing, you know, <laughs> You know, without necessarily talking. So Aizuddin, where was the connection? How did you make that connection? Yeah, I think my brother Nazmi had sent me a series of these recordings even before I had considered applying for uh, fresh ed flux and um, so I had heard of these recordings before I, I thought of uh, the project and when I was working on the project and of course music had became a sort of central dimension of the backbone of the episode I remember that my brother had worked on the, these series of compositions and I felt like it would be a good accompaniment to the story that I was trying to tell and so it sort of worked out in a way without necessarily you know my brother knowing about this project that I was working on it's beautiful I mean Nazmi you might say you're not a good guitarist but actually in my opinion it's beautiful music music that you play and it's sort of you know between the sounds of the river and the sound of your music it's, it is as Isadine says the backbone of the episode in many ways and then yet there's layers to it about how memory is working from the stories you just say so I mean it really just adds this level of complexity that just I think makes the episode so beautiful the sounds really seem you know from my US ears they really sound like the blues what's the connection I know you say you were sort of influenced by a particular American musician. But when we tell a story of memory and meandering down a river, why blues? Why is this sort of a way of thinking about it? I don't want to kind of emphasize that too much because, I mean, again, if you were to play it to a real blues musician, he would probably think that it's not out to par. But I felt like blues was originally kind of a rural music, right? And it has this sense of melancholia. It's not completely depressing or sad. It's neither, it's not very happy either. But it exists in this kind of, like when I listen to this, old recordings there's this feeling of longing uh, there's like a feeling of trying to connect or, or trying to get something across right? and, and I guess that's the kind of feel that I was gravitating towards uh, rather than the more I guess technical uh, aspect of the music or like I'm not very good with kind of the actual you know, structure of the music but I was in a way trying to not to say imitate but to kind of connect to the same kind of emotional uh, resonance that affected me while listening to those kind of music so I guess it was more the the, the mood and the feel which is kind of somehow rural to my ears I mean if you think about jazz jazz is an urban form of music and blues is more rural so I felt that the music was had that more rural kind of feeling but also it has this kind of steady motion which you can then relate to the idea of the, the flow of the river and that it's, it's always going somewhere but you're not really sure where it's going and I think if you look at blues music it does not have like if you listen to orchestral music there's like a crescendo there's like a climax with blues it does not have that kind of peaks but it has that kind of very steady 
flow to it and I guess that's part of the charm and, and that's part of the thing that I'm trying to channel this music which is very open-ended not really going somewhere but it's kind of flowing along I guess Isadine I want to ask you about you know thinking about what Nazmin just said about blues music and the melancholy and the longing and the sort of meandering you know and thinking also of, of issues of memory which I think we've now discussed quite a bit what does all of this say about the sort of academic field of international development, which is, you know, an area that you've studied, you know, academically, you're now teaching probably some things related to international development. What can we learn from all the different sounds and sort of devices of memory that you've used in your episode to help us understand that academic field of international development? Yeah, that's a very good question, which I admit I haven't thought of uh, consciously. But I guess part of, I think, what endures in the work of development is, is the sense of the temporal dimension of, of change um, in society. And I feel like memory is such an important resource for thinking about that, that change, particularly memory across generations that have encountered development in very different ways across time. And so I feel like the memory of people who have experienced development is a crucial resource for understanding the more sort of granular dimensions of what development looks like uh, in place. I mean, of course, we can talk about development in very sort of theoretical dimensions um, and very sort of macro level thinking around development. But I think the more day-to-day encounters of people with development, the sort of good and the bad of it uh, is important to illuminate, uh, particularly to identify the differences and, and the convergence across generations. So in this episode, I highlight the, the changes from my grandfather's generation to my mom's generation to my own generation with my brother and how across those different generations there are changes, but there are also things that we would like to in many ways hold on to, um, which I think is, is important to, to foreground. I think that the mood of, you know, a melancholy mood is sort of, that really does capture it in a way. Yeah, I mean, definitely. It, feel, it is a very complicated, sort of ambivalent emotional space because... On the one hand, much of what we enjoy today in the kind of rural spaces is credited to development. So better public transportation, better roads, better access to telecommunication, things that that today are things that we take for granted were at one point very difficult to access. I I think, again, back to that notion of having to physically cross the river to get to the other side on a boat uh, to visit my grandparents' house, to think about how that no longer is something that, say, you know, my brother's children have to think about is something that's remarkable. But on the other hand, to see the sort of changing face of the river and how the river has shifted its character from being this playground to something that we fear because of floods. The other hand, it is quite unsettling. So it's a very sort of ambivalent space. And to sort of come to a conclusion here, Isadine, you know, what's next for you? You you started a new position as a lecturer. Congratulations, by the way. This is immediately after you finished your PhD. You've now finished the Flux Fellowship. You've produced some, you know, really sonically beautiful stories based on research. You know, so what's the future for you when it comes to doing research and also trying to maintain that creative side that you obviously have? I mean, both you and your brother have it, but you know, how do, how do you see it going forward in your academic career? It's a question that I'm trying to find time to think about in the kind of rush of, of uh, starting a new position. And I want to sort of think carefully about 
what's next. And I do feel like working on this fellowship has given me a sense of that kind of amalgamation of that creative and the academic in a way that I feel is will be fruitful going forward. It's something that I've spoken to my brother about in a sense of how this episode serves in many ways as a kind of entryway into perhaps a bigger project of, of story and development, um, not only in Malaysia, but perhaps in, in other parts of Southeast Asia on how sort of these stories that we tell across generation says so much about development from the sort of ground up, but also in a kind of temporal sense. So hopefully there is space to think about this kind of sonic project um, on a larger scale and, and to introduce many more stories to make this a much, of course, richer uh, landscape, but also a much more complicated uh, description. Aizadine Anwar, Nazmi Anwar, thank you so much for joining Fresh Head. It's just absolute pleasure to talk and sort of meander with you through this journey of memories and water and, and Malaysia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Aizadine Anwar is a lecturer in education at Kiel University and recently completed the Fresh Head Flux episode. His brother, Nazmi Anwar, teaches architecture in Malaysia and can be heard on the Flux episode. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshheadpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you've liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Fresh Ed's team includes Sherry Yang, Fatih Oktas, Obafemi Ongunle, Dion Jiang, Annabella Afrobotang, Anya Lin, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Fresh Ed is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of the Open Society Foundations, the UCL Institute of Education, NORAG, the Shockdev Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Fresh Ed by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.